Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor John Gardea. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's holy word. Good morning, everybody. So thank you for those of you who are returning for part two. And uh, this it's really a joy to be able to be up here today and uh, to be able to preach from these passages. They're just so rich. So as we start off today, we're just going to do a real brief summary of what we covered last week, and then we will dive right in um, to where we left off. So this parable starts off by telling us about a father who has not one son, but two sons. The, sno- the story is not just about the prodigal son, and it's very unfortunate that there are many who just focus on the prodigal son, because if you do that, you're going to miss out on a third of the story, because this story is about uh, three different characters. So first of all, the prodigal son represents the tax collector, the prostitute, which is the outright sinner. Then there is God the Father, represented by the Father in this story. And so we learn um, quite a bit about the character of the Father. And then there's the eldest son who represents the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, So this would be somebody who appears to be good on the outside, but on the inside, they're a sinner at heart. So these are the types of people that Jesus is preaching to Um, as he's telling the parable of the prodigal son. So the younger son makes this bold request, and he asks his father for his share of the inheritance, which we talked about last week, that would be quite an insult if you can just imagine your child saying, I want my share of the inheritance now. And, you know, certainly you would be shocked if your child asked you that. But what, what's so shocking about this story is that the father actually grants the request of his son. So what he does is he divides his estate between both of his sons. So the prodigal son packs up all his belongings and then he leaves for a distant land. And he's trying to get away from his father because he doesn't want any type of accountability. So in this distant land, this son of the, the young son Uh, He wants to feed the desires of his flesh. So he lives a lavish life. And what he does is he just throws himself in complete and utter debauchery. And he spends his father's money, which is his inheritance, on prostitutes. So soon the prodigal son finds himself to be completely broke. He spends all of that money, just completely wastes the money, on his uh, lavish life. So, lo and behold, just as that happened, there's a famine that hits the country. Now at this point, the young son, he's still not ready in his heart. So he continues to trust in himself to make things right. So he goes and he convinces a citizen of that town to hire him. So the citizen sends him out into the field to feed swine. Now remember, 
to a Jew, this would be completely and utterly degrading because pigs are disgusting and unclean animals. Now, the prodigal son becomes so hungry, he doesn't have anything to, to eat. And remember, nobody is willing to help him. So he's looking down at the, at the pig slop and he's starting to say, Mmm, that looks good. So that's how, that's how desperate he is. This is the situation that he's in. Um, but he can't eat the pig slop because the carob pods uh, are not digestible for, for humans. So desperate times cause the prodigal son to start to think. And he starts to evaluate his heart and what he has done. And he realizes how good his father is and that he has offended his father, that he has sinned. And not only is his sin against heaven, but his sin is also against his father. So he plans to return home to his father. So he rehearses and he rehearses what he's going to say. So the prodigal son, he turns his back from this distant land, this land where he was in complete, utter debauchery, and he heads back home to his father. And this is a picture of repentance. So this is a very important scene in this story. So the young son, he has a change in his heart, and his desire now is to be with his father more than anything else. That's his new heart. So the, lo the loving father who is at home, he's watching out for his son. He's looking for him. And one day, he sees his son in the distance. So what does the father do? He is so overjoyed that he runs to his son. Now, I want you to remember that he's a nobleman, right? So he's dressed in a very nice robe, and it's hard to run, so he has to pick up the robe to be able to run. So now he's exposing his legs. And this is just something that a nobleman would not do. So all of the townspeople who see the father doing this, they're shocked. So all of the shame, instead of falling to the, the young prodigal son, it now falls to the father. What is the father doing? It's the son that really deserves to be re rebuked. He deserves to be punished. And he should be required to pay back every bit of that inheritance that was wasted. So the shame really should fall to the son. But it doesn't. It falls to the father because of his actions. But here's the other shocker. The father forgives his son at the first sign of repentance. And the prodigal son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can finish his, re his rehearsed line, remember, um, the ending of his, his rehearsed lines were, make me as one of your hired men. But the, what, how, what does the father do? He interrupts his son with embrace, on embrace an embrasso, and a kiss. And this is regardless that the son, he smells like the pigs that he's been caring for. But the father doesn't care because he loves his son so much. 
And so then the father calls to his slaves, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And he completely restores his son. No rebuke, no punishment, complete forgiveness and restoration. Then he tells the slaves to kill the fattened calf because it's time for a celebration. And so this brings us to part two. All right, so we're going to start in verse 23 today. So Luke chapter 15, verse 23. And it says, this, and this is the father talking to, to the slaves, and he says, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Now this, this is a major celebration all right, so when we think of large celebrations, the first thing that probably would come to your mind would be a wedding celebration. But this celebration, this is put on by the father, and he puts it together um, for all the townspeople. So this is actually bigger and more elaborate than a wedding celebration. So all the townspeople were known, no doubt and invited, and this would be a grand celebration. So can you just visualize how the house is decorated? It's decorated with beautiful flowers, and there would be streaming banners, and the servants and the slaves, they would be catering to the guests, and they would be serving the people while the mu musicians would be playing music. And there would be plenty of delicious food and wine and dancing. And we know that this is a major celebration because killing the fattened calf was reserved only for very special occasions. So my question is, who is this party for? And most of you would probably answer, it's for the prodigal son. But this celebration is not for the son, it's for the Father. This celebration is for the glory of the Father. You see, the Christian believer, that is you and me, if you have indeed come to Christ, you, you are not special in, in yourself. Neither am I, okay? I don't mean to be offensive in any way. But a, whether if you're a Christian, you are a sinner just like a non-believer is a sinner. And the truth of the matter is that a sinner doesn't deserve to be celebrated. A sinner deserves to be punished. So why is it so important to understand? What's so important to understand about salvation is that it is by God's loving grace and mercy extended to the repentant person through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Salvation is is exclusively through Christ. And what's so amazing about this, about uh, what's so amazing is the fact that salvation through Christ reverses an impossible situation. And all of heaven celebrates when one sinner repents. In Matthew 26, I'm sorry, in Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus, he even explains the difficulty of salvation. And after his explanation, the disciples asked, then who can be saved? 
And Jesus said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there is no work that a man can do to save himself. Going to church, working for the church, praying, baptism, being self-righteous, giving to the poor, none of these things are going to get you into heaven. So one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2.8, starts off by saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So this verse makes it crystal clear. It is not your own doing. Salvation is not your own doing. Who gives you the grace? God, right? Who gives you the faith to believe? Jesus. It's not a result of what? Works, right? Why not? So that no one may boast. So when I get, when I, when I get to Kevin, I, uh, I'm not going to be able to say, Norm, I got a three-bedroom condo. What do you got? I won't be able to do that because it's not my doing. It's all by the Lord God. He's the one who saves. So in the case of the prodigal son, does he deserve to have such an elaborate celebration for his honor? Does any sinful man deserve to be honored by throwing them a party? That is me. That is you. We do all the sinning, but God does all the saving. So then I ask you, who deserves to be celebrated? The Lord is worthy of all honor and glory for saving a wretch like the prodigal son for saving a wretch like me, and for saving you. And the message of the celebration that, that we are reading about in all of Luke chapter 15 is very uh, significant. So let's consider the parable of the sheep at the very, ver, verse number one in chapter 15. Uh, when the shepherd comes home after finding the one lost sheep, right? He calls his friends to celebrate with him. So let me ask you, are they celebrating to the honor of the sheep that was lost? No, their, their celebration is for the joy of the shepherd. In the parable of the lost coin, right? Uh, when the woman finds that one coin that was lost and she calls to her friends to celebrate to her, are they celebrating to honor the coin? No. They are celebrating because of the woman's joy. And in the, par in the parable of the prodigal son, the son is terrible to his, what he does to his father. He wishes him dead so that he can have his, his estate. And then he goes and he defiles his body with prostitutes and lives in utter debauchery. Right? Does he deserve for the party to be in his honor? No. He doesn't. But the father completely forgives his son. And as I said before, there was no rebuke, no penalty. So the father who is merciful 
and full of grace is overjoyed that his son was lost, but now he's found. And because of the father's joy, he calls for a celebration for his glory. So these celebrations in chapter 15, if you didn't know this, is a foreshadow of the grandest celebration that will ever come at the culmination of time when all believers in Jesus Christ throughout all of history are together with Christ. There will be the grandest celebration that will ever happen and it will all be for the glory of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6, it says this, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. All for the glory of the Lord. And I can only imagine how grand this celebration will be. And blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as the Pharisees listened to Jesus tell this story, I mean, they're in complete and utter shock. They're horrified by the actions of the father. How could the father do such a thing? How can the father order a banquet for the very son who shamed him? The very son that dishonored the father by wishing him dead so that he could have the inheritance. Why would the father command his servants to use the very best of everything he owned to honor that disgraced son. The Pharisees didn't understand that the party was for the joy of the father. So, under, to, uh, so understand the message that the Pharisees could not. We can come to the Lord. No matter the filth, no matter the muck, no matter the stench, the Lord is merciful to those who humble themselves and have a repentant heart. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And he replaces our rotten rags, washes us from our filthy stench. The Lord gives the repentant sinner a perfect robe of his own righteousness. Just as the father replaced the, pro the prodigal son's raggedy smelling clothes with a robe of honor, the Lord will give you perfect clothing because it is his righteousness. He offers forgiveness, honor, authority, and full access to all of his riches to all who come to him. His justification is full and immediate. Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they begin to celebrate. So just like the young son, those of us who are in Christ, we were dead in our trespasses, living according to the course of this world, according to the prince 
of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Hallelujah. This is amazing grace. And the father is overjoyed that his precious son, who was once dead in sin, is now alive. And the prodigal son, has complete, his heart has completely changed. He was lost in a world of sin, but he is found and embraced by the Father. And the debt has been canceled and nailed to the cross. And the Father is overjoyed that his son has been found. And in the same way, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord, if you have turned away from your sinful ways and come to the Lord, then I say, let us honor and glorify the Lord for canceling our debt and saving us from eternal death. Glory, hallelujah, to our great God. So this brings us now to the character of, of the eldest son. Uh, verse 25 and 26. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of, his, one of the servants and began, to, began inquiring what, are the, what these things could be. So I want you to picture the scene. If you could just be a fly on the wall, if you could be present there, the eldest son, he's out, on the, he's out in the field, although he's probably not working because that was the job for the slaves and for the hired men. The eldest son would be an overseer of the workers. So most likely, he's sitting in the shade and he's handing out orders. Noblemen in the Middle East, they really didn't work that much because of the, their dignity. So when he gets close enough to the house, he hears music. And in confusion, he asks, is that music that I hear? And the eldest son draws even closer to the house. And not only does he hear music, but he sees people dancing. And it's interesting that the eldest son never knew about the celebration. As large as this celebration is, he never knew about it. Why? Why would he not know about this celebration? The father has invited the entire, the entire town to come to the celebration, yet the eldest son has no idea about it. The older son, remember, symbolizes the Pharisee. And just like the Pharisees did not have a true relationship with the Lord, neither did the son have a relationship with his father. The eldest son is a religious hypocrite. 
never recognizing the sin that's in his heart. He has no desire to go uh, to his father's house. So instead of just going to the house to see what's happening, the eldest son calls on the servant and he asks, what's going on? Verse 27 and 28. And this is the servant speaking. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and he began to plead with him. And many listening to this parable today may believe that the older son was more honorable than the younger son because he did the work, right? He was working on the property. And many reading this story would even identify the eldest son as the Christian. He was not outwardly rebellious like his younger brother, right? He wasn't, he wasn't going out and being with prostitutes. The eldest son appeared to honor the father. He appears to be a good person. And the people of the town would say that the eldest son is a good man. But is he really? Is he really a good person? In the text, we can gain insight to the eldest son because of how he reacts. So what does the text say about, his, about the eldest son? It says, he becomes angry. The eldest son, he's so upset that he's not even willing to join the celebration. Not only is his heart burning with anger, but it's also filled with pride. I'm not going to go into that house. Pride. Can you hear the shouts of anger that's going on in the eldest son's head? I'm the good son. I'm the son that should be honored. I've never disobeyed my father like that wretched son of his. So what's the problem with the eldest son? If he worked day after day at the father's house, what's the problem? Well, here it is. He doesn't see a need for forgiveness for his own sons, for, for his own sins. The eldest son is so angry that his heart gives birth to the sin of murder. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said to the Pharisees, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Very sobering words. So in other words, the internal attitude, the internal anger carries the same kind of moral guilt as the act of murder. So if you're angry with your brother, it's the same sin as murder. So understand this, the feelings that are in your heart and the thoughts of your mind can be offensive to the Lord. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that does not please God. In Matthew 5.28, Jesus also said, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman 
with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is saying is that if you're entertaining these lustful thoughts, it's the same as sleeping with this person that you're lusting for. And even though you haven't physically engaged in this sexual act, it's still a sin because that is what your heart desires. Sin has been conceived. It's been born in your heart. That is the problem with the Pharisees and with the eldest son. They are righteous on the inside, but on the inside, they are full of sin. In Matthew 23, starting in verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside you appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The oldest son is just like the scribes and the Pharisees, and he does not recognize the sin in his heart. He believes that because he's laboring for his father, that that makes him a good person. And his, he, he really does not love the father. He does not respect the father. Instead, the eldest son despises his father. And because the father accepts the younger son and restores him. So that's where his anger is coming from. So rather than rejoicing at the return of his younger brother, he becomes angry and jealous. And no doubt the eldest son is thinking, you clothe that son of yours in a robe and you put a ring on his finger and put shoes on his feet. How could you do that, father? The robe, the ring, and the shoes, they belong to me. I'm the one who right, rightfully deserves them. I'm the good son. And when the oldest brother hears, hears that they killed a fattened calf, his anger surges within his heart. And the anger which that has given birth in the eldest son heart is now a raging fire. So let me ask you this application question. Has your heart ever given birth to anger and grown into a raging fire? Have you ever been so angry with somebody have you ever burned with so much anger that you wished ill will upon a person? So let me tell you this story. And I hope that through this story, it'll help you relate to the sin of anger. So one day there was a wicked boss, a wicked and evil boss. And for whatever reason, this boss hated a worker that was diligent in their duties so the boss places this worker in the worst possible position in the country. In, I'm sorry, in the company. So this job is so undesirable that it would be more desirable to be shoveling sewage. And day after day, this worker is struggling with the trials and tribulations within this company. And eventually the worker starts to become so resentful towards this boss that he even wishes that the boss would be transfer, transferred into another pos position. 
But considering evilness, the evilness of the boss, the worker begins to wish that the boss would even be fired. And day after day, as the torment continues, the worker becomes more angry. And he starts to swell with anger. And he even starts to think, even being fired is not good enough. It's not enough justice for this evil boss of mine. I hope my boss falls ill and dies a slow, miserable, and painful death so that they will be out of my life. Can you feel the anger? Now, here's the shocking part of the story. Do you know who the boss represents? The, re the boss represents you. It represents me. And you may be saying, no, 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 Pastor John, I'm not a boss. Well, that may be true. You may not be a boss, but you have something in common with this evil boss. And that is that you are a sinner. If you have committed one sin, you are guilty of committing sin, all the sins, right? If you committed sin at one point, you're guilty of committing all sins. We are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all in need of the Father's mercy and grace. And to allow anger to grow in your heart and to curse your enemy is hypocritical. If God has enough mercy and grace to forgive you, should he not have that same and mercy, mercy and grace for all that come to him? Even an evil boss that recognizes in their heart that they are sinful and that they need to repent. Or do you consider yourself more special than other sinners? God does not wish for anyone to perish. His desire is that all should repent of their sins and turn, turn towards him. So how does, how does the father treat his prideful and eldest son? What does he do? He continues to demonstrate graciousness. So let's look at the end of verse 28. And the father came out and began to plead with him. And as a parent of children, I know you can understand this. Even when your child goes astray, even when your uh, child needs to be saved, right? Your heart aches for them. So just imagine the father's heart. He's, he pleads with his son and he comes out and he begs his hypocritic, this hypocritical sinner because the Lord is always seeking to save the lost. So can you hear the pleads of the father? He's saying, please, son, understand how much I love you. Please come into my house and join the celebration. He's inviting his son. And the eldest son refuses to enter the celebration. And this is the picture of the scribes and the Pharisees' continual refusal of Christ. Which reminds me of Matthew 23, 13, when Jesus said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
So despite hearing the pleads of the father, the eldest son continues to deny his father. So listen to the eldest son's response, verse 29. But when he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. So you notice the very first word that the eldest son says? He doesn't even mention his father as a father. He doesn't recognize his father. Instead, he says, look. And as if you look in the, in, in the text, there's an exclamation point. So the eldest son is just enraged. So can you see the eldest son being so angry and pointing and disrespecting his father by pointing his finger at him? So angry that he raises his voice. For so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours. Do you think that's true? Do you think that the eldest son carried out his father's commands perfectly? No, of course not. Considering his contempt for his father, which he's showing by refusing to go into the celebration and join his father in his joy, this reveals the pride of his heart. So we can already see that the eldest son has the sin of pride in his heart. And he sees him, but the, the, the eldest son sees himself as perfect and he believes that there is no need for repentance. He doesn't even recognize his anger, his pride, and his obstinate heart. He believes that he's obedient and that he is abiding by the law. It's the very same problem that the religious Pharisees had. So neither the Pharisees nor the eldest son saw the need for repentance. But I'll tell you this, without a repentant heart, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. So the eldest son, his anger grows, and he says, you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. He doesn't even include his father or his youngest brother in this celebration that he wants to have with his friends. He's so jealous of his youngest brother receiving the fattened calf. And even though in verse 12, if you were to go back into verse 12, it tells us that the father divided his wealth between his two sons. So the oldest son, he has access to all these riches, right? They both receive their inheritance. And according to the law, this is, this is uh, significant, according to the law, the right of the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. And that's in Deuteronomy 21.17. So that means that the eldest son would have received two-thirds of his father's estate. So why would he complain about not receiving a young goat? He's already been provided for abundantly. So despite receiving so much from his father, the son believes that it is actually the father who is in error. He believes that the father should ask him for forgiveness. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, 
the father is the one who is at fault. Then the eldest son goes on to point out the sins of his brother. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So notice that the eldest son doesn't even recognize his brother as a sibling. Instead of referring to him as his brother, he says, this son of yours. The eldest brother, he actually reminds me of a child. He, he reminds me of the students that I have at school. Just like a child, he's pointing the blame away from himself. He did it. Have you ever heard that from your children? Right? Children are always trying to draw attention away from themselves, especially when they're guilty. So the eldest son says, your son has defiled himself with prostitutes. He has squandered your money and lived in debauchery. Yet you killed a fattened calf for him. Can you feel the anger? Can you feel the hatred of the eldest son? And just like the Pharisees, he points out the sins of his brother, yet he does not recognize his own sin in his heart. And the eldest son is completely trusting in his own good deeds to be right in the eyes of his father and in the eyes of all the people that are living around them. So this brings up another important lesson. The good things that you do during your lifetime will not save you. And so many people, they believe that they're going to go to heaven because they're good. I would guesstimate and this is just a total guess, that 90% of the people in El Paso would say, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I go to church, I pray, I give money, uh, I teach at children's church, I give to the homeless, etc., etc., etc. I'm such a good person, of course God is going to let me into heaven. But I warn you, that's not how you enter into heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees uh, and, and religions, because of these things, they believe that they can enter into heaven by the good things that they do. So if you have fallen into this, uh, into this trap, that's a problem, right? Do you do uh, things and good deeds to gain favor from the Lord? Are you running on the performance treadmill thinking that this is going to help you get into heaven? Are there times in your life, and this is a great example, are there times in your life when you're reading your Bible, you're praying to the Lord, you're going to church, and the sins in your life are at a very minimal, right? And it's times like this that you feel like you're on spiritual steroids and you feel so close and intimate with the, with the Lord God. But then there comes a day when you don't read your Bible. Maybe it's because you're too busy. Maybe you forget to pray and you, because your mind is so preoccupied with your iPad. And then you fall into sin and into temptation. And it's during this time that you feel so distant from the Lord. Have you experienced these peaks and these valleys? Can you all relate to this? 
Well, if you can relate to this, you need to get off the performance treadmill because whether you are being good or whether you are being bad, what is important is that you need God's grace and mercy. That's what you need. Do you not, do you know how good you have to be to get into heaven? That's a great question. How good do you have to be to get into heaven? Do you know that the Bible tells you? Some of you may be saying, what? Huh? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard that has been set for you. That means that you can never sin. You must do everything right in the sight of the Lord. No lustful thoughts, no hateful thoughts, no coveting, no pride. You must be perfect in every way to get into heaven. And the Bible says that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So if you, whether you are like the prodigal son and you're an outright sinner, or whether you are the self-righteous legalist son, or maybe you're like both sinners. Maybe you can relate to both of them. I know I can. The point is, is that we are all lost and need to be found. And Jesus Christ is the only hope for your salvation. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And God the Father sent his only begotten son who lived a sinless life. And Jesus, he didn't deserve to be punished, but he willingly took our place. And he was punished for the sins that you and I committed. Jesus' death was a substitution. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. The perfect for the corrupt. We are all criminals and we all deserve to be punished for the sins that we have committed. Jesus died on the cross so that you might be saved. And this is why denying Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. It's the ultimate insult to the Lord. So whether you're like the prodigal son or whether you're like the eldest son, the only work that's going to save you is the finished work on the cross that was done by Jesus Christ. Amen. The Father sent his only begotten Son to this world to be punished in your place so that you can be saved. And the Lord loves you so much and he wants you to come to him. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in the last two verses in, in, in our study today, it continues to demonstrate the love of the Father. In verse 31 and 32, it says, And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. 
Can you feel the compassion of the Father? The Father has given both of his sons their inheritance. He has provided for them abundantly. And he tells the oldest son, all that is mine is yours. Come. My love, my grace, my words, my riches, they're all yours, son. And the father pleads and he pleads with his son, come, come, my son, I love you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, likewise, they received the same riches from the Lord. They received the covenants. They received the law. They received the promises. And they received the riches of God's truth. And they spent their lives studying the scriptures and they publicly worshiped the Lord. They were the most religious people on the earth. But just like the eldest son, they did not have salvation. Is it possible to be so religious that you can't be saved? How can that be? Because they trusted in following the law. They trusted in following a religion. They trusted in following themselves rather than trusting the good father. The prodigal son, however, he trusted in his good father. That's the difference. Lost in sin, but found by the mercy and grace and love of his father. And our final verse summarizes the point of these three parables that are in Luke chapter 15. Let's celebrate and rejoice what was lost has been found. And there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Being saved by the Lord is such a joyous celebration. Lost and dead to sin, but found by the mercy and grace of the Father the good Father who gives us eternal life in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Eternal life in Christ is the greatest reason to celebrate because he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain because we will be with Christ. So in closing, I want you to consider what happened at the end of the parable. If you notice, the parable doesn't have an ending, right? We don't know what happens to the eldest son. Did he realize that he's a self-righteous sinner? Does he repent and join in the celebration? Or did he remain angry and full of resentment? How does it end? And though this parable doesn't give us an ending, we can consider the actions of the sons of Israel because the Bible refers to Israel as the Lord's eldest son. If we look in Exodus 4.22, it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So how did Israel react to the goodness of the Lord? Well, they denied the Lord over and over and over throughout history. And during his time on this earth, Jesus Christ performed many miracles. And the scribes and the Pharisees 
and all of Israel. They were eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus Christ. And in many verses in the Bible, it mentions that the multitude, that they followed Jesus because of the miracles that he performed. And Jesus taught throughout the entire land, and the people were amazed at his authority. The blind received sight, the lame walked, those who have leprosy were cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead were raised. The Israelites saw the miracles of Jesus. They heard his word from his very own mouth. And one day, Jesus, Jesus Christ performed an amazing miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he did this to demonstrate to the people that were watching that he is indeed the Son of God. And many on that day who witnessed this miracle, they put their trust in Jesus Christ. They had faith in him. And the Pharisees, they knew this. So the Pharisees knew that God had promised to send a Messiah. And remember that they diligently studied the scriptures. So despite witnessing all these miracles of Christ, they refused to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. All they could see was that if the people started believing in Jesus, then they would no longer follow them. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they were afraid to lose their wealth and their power. As a result, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they all held a meeting and they began to plot how to kill Jesus. And the Jewish leaders would then falsely accuse Jesus. And in the cover of night, they would arrest him and they would hold an illegal trial. And the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate and they stir up the crowd to shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Jesus, the Son of God, was treated like a criminal, even though he was innocent and he was beaten, and he was tortured, and hanged on a cross. So if the Pharisees crucified Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for fear of losing their wealth and their power, is it possible that the eldest son feared losing his wealth and his position so much to his younger brother, and in an effort to preserve this wealth and this power, the eldest son accuses the father before the governor and he stirs up the town people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And even though this ending may be shocking and horrifying to you this morning as you hear a possible ending, I want you to remind you of this. We cannot outsend the grace and the mercy of the Lord Okay, let me say that again. We cannot outsin the grace and the mercy of the Lord. If you truly desire to come home to the Lord and to join his celebration, repent and call on his name and the Lord will save you. And know that you know that you can trust in this because even while the sons of Israel crucified Jesus, while it was all happening, 
Remember this part in Luke 23, chapter 23, Jesus calls out from the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And God the Father, who was full of mercy and full of grace, he hears his son. And after, the, after Peter the apostle was restored after denying Christ, the Lord calls on him to preach to the Israelites who crucified Jesus. Remember this in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36. And it says, And Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So if Jesus Christ calls out to his Father in heaven to forgive those who crucified him, and if the Father in heaven has enough mercy and grace for those who were guilty of crucifying his precious son, know that the Lord has enough mercy and grace for you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 10.30 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near UTEP. If you have any questions, you can dial 915 308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.